Good morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing well? My name is Travis Lowe. I am the college and career pastor on staff here at the church, although I, I do more than just college and career ministry. I also help with our adult education classes in the foundations program, which means that I get to teach things like church history and systematic theology, which is some of my, my favorite stuff to do. Uh, and then I also get the opportunity every so often to be able to spend Sunday mornings with you all. But primarily, my, my job is college and career. Now, over the course of the summer, the college and career ministry has been walking specifically through uh, a series of doctrinal ideas called the five solas. They come to us from the Protestant Reformation. Maybe you've never heard of them before, so let me just kind of explain to you what it is that they are. Uh, about 500 years ago, there was a division that happened within the church uh, a division that took place because uh, leaders and figures like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, all, all these different theologians came to be convinced that there are these five principles that were central to the life of the people of God, uh, these five core commitments. And they felt that they were so important that where these commitments were not elevated, uh, there needed to be a very serious conversation about Christian unity. And these commitments have come to be known as the five solas, sola meaning only or exclusively or alone. And so the first week of this series, we, we talked about sola scriptura, which essentially makes this claim that the final authority in the life of the church is holy scripture. The week after that, we talked about sola gratia, which means by grace alone. That is to say that we are saved only and exclusively by God's grace, not by anything we have done to warrant that grace in and of ourselves. The week after that, Shane Drury, our high school pastor, talked about sola fide, that we're justified before God by our faith. Not our works, but our faith in the work of Christ. And then this past week, we talked about solus Christus, that if we are to approach God and to know God, we will only know him through Christ alone. Now, there's some historic reasons why that statement was controversial 500 years ago, but I would venture to say that that statement is controversial now in our own day, that we can only approach God through Christ alone. About a year ago, there was a conversation that happened. Uh, there was a man who had been nominated for a particular position in public office, and he was going through the normal process of uh, being vetted, and there was a, a conversation that he had with a senator. Earlier in his life, he had uh, published something making the statement that salvation came only through Christ, and that outside of Christ, to be outside of Christ was to be outside of the scope of salvation. And one of the senators that was interviewing him and sort of vetting him for this role just could not wrap his mind around this. You, you really think that Christ is the only way to know God? You really think that this is the only way to be saved? It, it was a difficult concept for him to understand. Maybe you've grown up in church, and, and this is just what you've heard for your whole life, and so it doesn't seem particularly difficult for you to grasp, but, but I want to put this forward to you, especially if you've been in the church for a long time and you're not uh, terribly affected by this idea. Uh, we live in a day and an age where you can open up your smartphone or your tablet and immediately, by virtue of Wikipedia, come into contact with 10,000 different world religions or more. Some of them theistic, some of them non-theistic, some of them monotheistic, some of them polytheistic. All of them claiming that by virtue of their systems and practices, you can have an encounter with the divine. So to say that out of all of those tens of thousands of religions, only one of them truly gets you to God is a radical statement. And if you don't feel a little bit uncomfortable in saying it, then I don't think you actually understand what you're saying. 
There was a time where you might have heard that there were people somewhere out there who believed differently than you, but you would never come into contact with them. They were thousands of miles away, and you'd have to walk that or ride a horse to get there. But we're constantly brushing up against people who believe differently than us. The statement that salvation comes through Christ alone is actually more challenging today than it was even 100 years ago. And yet, this has been, by and large, the unanimous testimony of the Christian church. That if we are to approach God, it must be done through this man, Christ Jesus, that there is only one way, truth, and life, and no one will come to the Father but by him. So here's my hope this morning as as we walk through the scriptures together, is that we might begin to see why the Christian church has confessed this with such a unified voice. So if you have your Bible, do me a favor, turn it into the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be in verses five through seven specifically, but we'll spend a little bit of time in one through five to develop context. And speaking of context, let me explain to you what it is that we're jumping into as we spend our, our morning in this text. Um, so one and two Timothy, along with the book of Titus, are called the pastoral epistles. They're the last bits of writing from the apostle Paul that we have. Uh, very likely he's at the end of his life somewhere between 60 to 67 AD. It seems based on what he's saying that he's in prison, he knows he's going to die soon, and he is very much concerned with making sure that the church going forward has her affairs in order and is capable of withstanding the upcoming persecution which is likely taking place under the Roman Emperor Nero. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy in the hopes of encouraging him as he deals with false teaching and as he tries to, to pastor his church well. But what you'll notice if you've read any of the other letters of Paul, things like Romans, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, is that the language of the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, it's, it's different. Paul's vocabulary is different. The way that he speaks is different. In the Greek, he, he uses a lot of words that he uses nowhere else. And here's what I think accounts for the difference in Paul's language. Um, Paul is, by his own testimony, in prison He's probably been tortured, which that just seems to be like par for the course in Paul's life. He's always getting tortured, but he knows that this is, this is a sickness unto death, if I can borrow that phrase. He knows that this is the one that he's not getting out of. So he's under the mental anguish of knowing that this is it for him. One of the other things that we can sort of discern as you look through Paul's letters is it seems like he may have some sort of a vision disorder. Who knows if this is the result of his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus or where it is that it comes from, but it seems as though Paul has trouble with his eyesight, likely under the, the situation that he's in and the circumstances he's in in prison, it's probably only gotten worse, very likely to the point that Paul himself can't write anymore. And so it's, I think, most likely that Paul has a friend in prison who's visiting him, who's writing for him. Now, we can't know with any certainty who this friend is, but but I'd put this forward to you. This is is my conviction. Uh, The language that Paul uses in the Greek to describe things like sin and healing and salvation and reconciliation, it's all medical terminology, and he doesn't use it anywhere else. Paul is writing here like somebody who is trained as a physician, And here's what we know from the testimony of the rest of Scripture. Paul knows somebody who was trained as a physician. Paul traveled with somebody who was trained as a physician. His name is Luke. And the language of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus bears a striking resemblance to the two books that Luke wrote. 
the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So here's what I think is happening. This is why the language is different in First and Second Timothy, is because Paul is no longer able to see, but his friend Luke is writing for him. You are hearing the voice of the apostle Paul through the pen of Luke, the beloved physician. And as Luke visits Paul in prison, Paul says, I've got to talk to Timothy. He says, I'll write it down for you. Tell me what you want to say. And so Luke starts writing, and then he reads it back to Paul, and he says, is this what you want to say? And Paul says, I couldn't have said it better myself. And so he keeps writing, and he keeps writing. And so what you're hearing here is the genuine voice of the apostle Paul through the pen of his friend Luke. Very much concerned with the state of the church going forward. He writes to Timothy in chapter 2 to make sure that the structure of the church's worship is Correct, And so he begins by saying in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul is writing to make sure that the worship of the church is right. And the first thing that he says is this. First of all, I urge that you pray. It's interesting that when we tend to think about worship in a church context, we think about the songs that we sing. That's certainly there. But the first thing that Paul's mind goes to is prayer. And then he says to Timothy, I need you to pray for all of these categories of people, for kings, for those in high positions, other translations might say rulers and authorities. This would have been profoundly shocking for Timothy because everybody that Paul just listed that he wants Timothy and Timothy's church to pray for are the people who are going to kill him. They are the people who have Paul in prison. They are the people who are torturing him. They are the people who are going to cut his head off whenever they so choose to do that. And he says, I want you to pray for these people. And here's what's astounding. He doesn't say pray that they would change their mind about me. He says pray for them because God is pleased by this. He desires salvation. He says that he desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't think what Paul is saying is that God desires that everyone should, would be saved and so everybody will be saved. It's not some sort of like a universalist statement. And, and I don't think that what Paul is saying is God wants something that God can't have because he can't seem to crunch the numbers right. And so he wants everybody to be saved, but he's just going to be disappointed in the end. What I think Paul is saying here is that God desires to save all sorts of people. Kings, rulers, authorities, even the people that Timothy would least expect. God is interested in saving all these kinds of people, so you pray for them all. And then we come to our text for the morning. He says this in verse five, there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he starts by saying, pray for all sorts of people, and then he grounds this declaration, he grounds this imperative by saying, pray for all people because there's only one God. Now, I'm, I'm just gonna be honest, maybe I'm like less spiritual than everybody in the room, but the first 10 times that I read that, I had no idea how those two statements were connected. I, I don't understand how these things are related to one another. But the more that I thought about it and the more that I wrestled with it and sort of looked into some commentaries on it, here's what I think is going on. In Paul's day, much like in our day, people are incredibly fragmented. They're divided by their nationality. They're divided by their economic status. They're divided by their particular occupations. But, but here's where it goes a step further in Paul's day, is that for every conceivable fragmentation of humanity, there's also a God. 
So, for example, you, you didn't, as a Roman citizen, just worship the Roman gods, but as a Roman citizen who was a low-income soldier, you worshipped the Roman god of war. Or as a Greek philosopher, you didn't just worship all the Greek gods, but you paid particular attention to the Greek god of wisdom. I don't know what the modern equivalent is. I don't know what the god of like fast food employees would be, or, or what the god of, of student loans, well, the god of college students would be student loans, I think, in the modern day and age. But... But this is the way that society is sort of fragmented in Paul's day. So here's what that enables people to do. I'm a Greek philosopher. I have my gods and my particular god. My friend over here is a Roman soldier. He has his god. Let his god sort out his problems. I can wash my hands of this. You have your own god. He or she will deal with your issues, and my god will deal with mine. And so here's what Paul says. He says, there's only one god. You don't get to wash your hands of the needs of other people and, and pass it off to whatever deity they serve. There's only one. All of humanity bears his image. Therefore, you must pray for everyone. And then he makes this statement. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. That is the man, Christ Jesus. The first time that I, I heard this term mediator, I was in high school. And there was a program called Peer Mediation. I'll be honest with you, in high school... I didn't talk to anybody, which meant that I never got in any arguments with anyone. It also meant that I didn't really have any friends, but that's totally fine. I'm not too broken up about it. But my understanding of the way that peer mediation worked was that if you did have a conflict with another student, you could go and you could sit down with somebody who was trained in, in the process of helping you reconcile your differences. Now, I'll also say that the few friends I had in high school never would have been mature enough to do something like this. I don't get along with John, so John and I don't talk anymore. But in theory, this is how it would work. There's a conflict between two parties. The mediator steps in and helps to reconcile things. Maybe you found yourself in the role of mediator between two friends who are not on speaking terms. Maybe you found yourself in the role of mediator between two parents who are estranged from one another. As is so often the case, the children play the role of mediator between two warring parents. The point is this. Mediation is only necessary where there's conflict. Friends don't need mediators. Enemies do. Paul says that there's one mediator between God and man, and so we have to ask this question. What's the conflict? Why do God and man need a mediator? What's the tension here that must be resolved? And if I can summarize an awful lot of the scope of the biblical witness in a very small couple minutes, I would put it like this. I would say specifically that God has created a good world. He's created mankind in his image. He's charged humanity with the care of creation to the glory of its creator. But humanity corporately, that is all of us as a collective and individually each and every one of us on our own by what we have said and by what we have left unsaid and undone have failed in the task that God charged us with. We reject the love of God. We violate the law of God. We set our face against the God and author of all goodness, and therefore we find ourselves under his just justice and condemnation. Maybe this sounds radical to some of us. Understandably so. You can turn on the news and you can see the horror that takes place throughout our world. You can open a history book and you can see sort of the nightmarish situations that happen in our world. And it's hard to think that 
passive-aggressively ignoring somebody's text messages on par with some of the nightmares that we see. This may help us sort of wrap our minds around the depth of the problem. There's a, a pastor in Portland named Joshua Butler, and he works specifically with the overseas partnerships in his church and, and with some of the mission opportunities. And so he is constantly in situations around uh, people who are the victims of genocide, the people who are the victims of extreme poverty. And, and when he initially came into contact with, with these people, the, the way that he sort of viewed it and the way that he sort of uh, thought through it was, I'm so glad that I am not like the people who are perpetrating these incredible injustices. I don't understand how anybody could do anything like that to another human being. I'm totally different from the people committing these atrocities. But, but then he started thinking about the root of all of this wicked fruit. Things like murder. Things like genocide. And, and as he traced it back to its source, what is it that leads people to murder? It's anger. It's rage. Well, that's all present in his heart. The seeds that ultimately yield the wicked fruit of murder and genocide are present in the soil of each and every one of us. Now, it's never been extrapolated out to the 10,000th degree, to the massive systematic issues that we see in our world, but make no mistake, what leads to that is there. He said to himself, I've, I've never been a corrupt government official who's, who's robbing citizens so that they can't afford to eat. But he said, greed, that's in my heart. Entitlement, that's in my heart. It's all there. Nobody gets off unscathed. Nobody gets out without some form of culpability. culpability. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we find ourselves here. Humanity must atone for our sins. But finite creatures could never satisfy the perfect justice of an infinite God. We find ourselves asking this question, what man could withstand the full force of God's judgment, but then asking in turn the following question, who but mankind can atone for mankind's failure? It's in the face of these questions that the great theologian of Canterbury, Anselm, responds in his book, Why the God-Man. He says, no one save God can satisfy God. Nobody but man ought to satisfy God for man's sins. Therefore, it is necessary for a God-Man to save us. This is the festering wound at the heart of the human condition that must be answered if the gospel is ever to rightly be called good news. This is the problem, and this is why I don't think it's so ridiculous to say that salvation only comes through Christ alone. I'm, I'm reaching the point in my life where the span of time between events is starting to terrify me. So, so for example, my, my best friend in the whole world is a guy named Josh, and I was talking to Josh, I, th I think we got breakfast before work or something like that, and we were just having sort of like a friendly catching up on life conversation, and over the course of us talking, uh, one of us came to the realization that we'd known each other for 20 years, and then we all stopped laughing. <laughs> and we just sort of stared with the, this like faraway gaze, and we're just like devastated by that reality. Oh my gosh, 20 years. I've known Josh long enough 
to have known him in elementary school when he was diagnosed with cancer. And I, and I wasn't fully conscious of what all was going on. I think my parents shielded me from that in some ways. I, I remember him not being around for school. I remember hearing when he went into surgery. I remember hearing about um, him undergoing chemotherapy and things like that. But, but imagine for a moment if Josh's parents, when he was diagnosed, when they sat down with the doctors, and the doctors said, your son has cancer. Here is the prescribed treatment option. Imagine, as the doctor said, it's going to be chemotherapy and it's going to be surgery. Imagine his parents responding, I hear what you're saying, but I was thinking maybe a skin graft instead. You don't understand. We, we need to perform surgery and we, we need to, to start him on uh, chemotherapy. I hear what you're saying. I think it's a little bit judgmental, though, that you won't let us go with our preferred option of Benadryl. You don't understand. The nature of the sickness puts constraints on the means by which it might be resolved. You don't have a third-degree burn. You have cancer. You don't have an allergic reaction. You have cancer. The nature of the sickness mandates a particular solution. The sickness of humanity, if the Bible is right, the sickness of humanity is such that Christ is the only remedy. There is no other way to heal this gaping wound in our humanity but the Son of God. How then, how then does Christ save us? We're told that there's one God, that there's one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus Paul says the man Christ Jesus. I don't think he's saying that because he doesn't believe that Jesus is divine. You can read the rest of Paul's writings. It's very clear that Paul understands that Christ is truly God and truly man. But I think what Paul is doing here by, by saying the man Christ Jesus is our mediator is he's grasping at something that's really central to Christian theology, really central to understanding salvation. Namely, it's this, that in order to save us, God the Son had to become like us. This is gonna land somewhere, I promise, but it's gonna sound a little convoluted at first. Um, I have always, for as long as I can remember, been an exceedingly anxious human being. Like, I'm just generally at sort of a base level of nervousness at all times. And there's, there's circumstances in my life that make it much worse. One of them is speaking to you all on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Every single time that I stand behind that curtain before I walk out here, I say to myself, why on earth did I say yes to Mark's email? Because I am going to throw up for fear of what's about to take place. But, but the worst situation in my life that I can remember in recent memory that, that caused my anxiety to just go haywire would have been when I was right out of high school and I would taken my first job as a freshman in college at Chick-fil-A. Now, I want to be clear because people have very strong opinions about Chick-fil-A. This is not in any way uh, a a slight against them. I'm just telling you that this is what happened to me when I worked there with my nervous disposition. So uh, one of the great things about Chick-fil-A, I think, as opposed to other fast food restaurants, is that the chicken that you're eating was raw probably 30 to 40 minutes before you ate it. Like, it's not pre-cooked patties that are reheated or anything like that. It's, it's genuinely raw chicken that they cook almost on demand, maybe a little bit ahead of time. And so I'm, I'm sitting through the training at, like, my first day at Chick-fil-A. As they're sort of explaining to me the process of food prep and, uh, and sanitation and things like that, and they make 
uh, this statement in the training curriculum, that handling raw chicken is incredibly dangerous, and if not handled properly, could result in sickness or death for our customers. That is the worst thing you could have told me with my horrifying anxiety. Because I really took that to heart. And then the second worst thing that could have happened is that they put me on the breading table in charge of all of the raw chicken for the rest of my tenure at Chick-fil-A. So occasionally, just every so often, I have been at the breading table for five hours straight, and they would say, Travis, we're shorthanded. We need somebody to move over and, and handle French fries. Can you go ahead and take all of your equipment off and, and get cleaned up and, and head over to fries? And so initially, I'd be fine. You know, that, that's cool. I'm going to be a good employee. I got to earn this paycheck. I'm working for the weekend. And so I would take off my apron, I'd take off my gloves, start washing my hands. They said 60 seconds, I would do 75 in case I had a particularly hearty strain of E. coli on my hands. I was very, very careful. And then I'd dry my hands off and I'd turn to go to the fry station. And then I would remember, probably an hour before all of this transpired, I'm pretty sure that some of the raw chicken got under my glove, which means that my hand was contaminated even when I took my gloves off which means that when I turned the faucet on to wash my hands, I contaminated the faucet. So even after I washed my hands and dried them, when I turned the faucet back off, my hand was contaminated. So I would start washing my hands again, but before I washed my hands, I would take some of the soap and I would wash the handle of the faucet to make sure that it wasn't contaminated anymore. And so then my hands are clean and I would turn around to walk away. I dried them off, but then I would remember that probably three hours before that, I had walked past the paper towel dispenser and I'm pretty sure that I had bumped into it with a part of me that had some of the chicken juice on it. And so my hands are again contaminated, so I would turn back from the fries. And so literally, this is what happened. Chick-fil-A paid me for about 10 months to wash my hands and run up their water bill. Functionally, that's what happened. I washed my hands, I'm not exaggerating, probably 20 or 30 times a sitting when they asked me to move from one place to another. What's my point in all this? We, we have, especially after understanding the way that communicable diseases work and germ theory and things like that, we, we have an understanding that when something that is corrupt comes into contact with something that is clean, the clean thing becomes corrupt. This is why if you're like me and a terrible friend, when your friends get sick, you're not on speaking terms until they go into remission. We're not talking until you're not contagious anymore. Because you know that being in the presence of someone who is sick will make you sick. They don't understand anything like germ theory or communicable diseases in the ancient world, but they do understand that contact with people who are sick will make you sick. Contact with corruption corrupts. This is why lepers are ostracized. You spend enough time around lepers and you'll probably develop leprosy. With one exception. You look through the Gospels, and Jesus is constantly coming into contact with these people. But rather than Christ developing leprosy, rather than Christ being corrupted by virtue of his contact with corruption, the people who come into contact with Christ are restored. The way that the world works begins to work backwards when it comes into contact with Jesus. Here's why all of this matters. Here's the point that I'm getting at. If you were to ask your average Christian, how did Jesus save us? The response would rightly be, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But if this were a test, that answer is only partially correct. Uh, understand this, wrap, wrap your mind around this with me. 
The work of the Son of God and your salvation did not begin when Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus of Nazareth to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. The work of the Son of God and your salvation began when the two natures of Christ were knit together indissolubly in the womb of the Virgin Mary and the power of the Holy Spirit. Gregory of Nazianzus, the great Cappadocian father, says this, that all of us has fallen. Every single part of our human nature is fallen. Therefore, whatever Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Whatever he has not taken upon himself and by virtue of contact with the eternal and changeless Son of God, purified, it is not restored. And so God's work in salvation in Christ is not just the death on the cross. Salvation comes by virtue of the incarnation where the eternal Son of God makes contact with our humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary, passes through the stages of human development, and in so doing sanctifies that process. He's born of Mary, the son of Joseph, and he, in contact with infancy, sanctifies and gives dignity to that office. He grows up. He passes through puberty. He has friends. He falls. He skins his knees. He's probably made fun of in Nazareth, but by virtue of contact with that part of the human experience, he sanctifies it. He takes for himself a job and gives dignity to vocation. He lives in a house. He pays taxes. And at every point, like lepers in the wilderness, by virtue of contact with the Son of God, the fullness of our humanity is restored and righted and removed from the corrupt state that we find it in after the fall of Adam. And then, and only then, after all of that, he hangs on the cross under the just judgment of God, which you and I so rightly deserve, and at his final breath, he makes contact with death. And rather than death corrupting the Son of God, the Son of God destroys the power of death. In the words of the psalmist, the Father doesn't let the Holy One see corruption or abandon him to Sheol, but death itself is destroyed when it makes contact with Christ, just like lepers in the wilderness. This is why the great theologian Augustine in his Christmas sermon says to his church, wake up, God became man for you. This is why the apostle Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, it is the man Christ Jesus, the eternal son of God taking on the fullness of our fallen state and reconciling it to himself. This is profoundly good news, Baylife. This is good news because if we were to anchor our prayers or our confidence before God in our own abilities, then our hope would be in constant jeopardy. Our confidence would be in constant question. I know myself well enough to know that if any of this depended on me, then I would be doomed. I am still the nervous kid who washes his hands 700 times in Chick-fil-A. But I know enough of Christ to know that when all of this depends on him, as it rightly does, nothing could snatch us out of his hand. This then is why we say that salvation comes by Christ alone. That man approaches God only through Jesus because in the flesh of the Son of God incarnate, God has approached us, made contact with our nature and raised it up to newness of life. The Apostle Paul goes on. He says, this is the testimony given 
at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is what sits at the heart of our faith. The incarnation of the Son of God, his atoning work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. This is good news. And I pray that you would go and you would declare it to those in your life, in your families, in your jobs, in your friendships. Let's pray. Father, we love you, God. We recognize that even in calling you Father, we are not here invoking a right but a privilege that is afforded to us by the work of Jesus Christ, the Son incarnate. United to him, we may call you Father as he calls you Father. He who teaches us how to pray. God, I pray that where our hearts have grown callous to the the earth-shattering truth, that Christ alone is our mediator. Break through that callousness. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, where we have grown weary in doing good or we've grown quiet in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel, would you open our lips to declare your praise? Lord, we ask that you would do all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit and we ask that you would do it in the name of Jesus Christ in whom we live and move and have our being. And we say amen.